Welcome to Smarter Market, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to the second season of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz, Michelle Dennity's co-host this season. You can follow me at Econ Todd. Over the coming weeks, we will continue to examine the crisis of capitalism and whether or not smarter markets is the antidote to a more inclusive and sustainable future. My guest for my second episode of the podcast is Arjun Murthy, renowned energy macro and equity analyst. Arjun has been analyzing the global energy market for nearly 30 years and spent over 20 years as an equity research analyst and partner at Goldman Sachs. He currently serves as a senior advisor to the Energy Group at Warburg Pincus, is on the board of directors of ConocoPhillips, and is an advisory board member at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Arjun and I look forward to crossing the intersection of energy, ESG, and the global economy this week, and our interview is coming up next. And now, back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Welcome, Arjun. I was listening to Joe Biden's energy secretary the other day, Jennifer Granholm, who was former governor of Michigan. But she turned to the energy companies, the big energy companies, and said, quote, the bottom line is you have got to move. You cannot hang on and be the Kodak or the blockbuster video of the energy world. You have got to diversify. What is she talking about? Is this just a matter of greenwashing? Do energy companies have to speak a better game or is this real change? You know, there was some years ago, British Petroleum started talking about beyond petroleum. Now, I wonder, based on Jennifer Granholm's comments, whether big energy should just jump on the latest fad or bandwagon. Maybe Exxon should change their name to Cryptexon or BP can become BitBP. What are we supposed to make of this? What opportunities do these big oil companies and gas companies, the petroleum companies, have in this future? So, Todd, I've met the secretary, and I think she makes some interesting points. You know, we're at, we're at this sort of very interesting point where for a hundred years or more, we've had this situation of growing populations, growing economy, which has lifted everyone's living standards. And with it has come growing energy demand and growing oil demand. And it's worked out well for society. We have much lower levels of poverty. We have an increasing middle class around the world, but we're now getting to the point where there's recognition that it's also come with the cost of too much carbon in the atmosphere. So there is a need to transition. The issue is, and the challenge is, unlike switching from, say, DVDs to streaming or from landlines to cell phones, which are often the comparisons made, it is going to be much more difficult to transition off legacy fossil fuels, oil and gas. And so in many respects, the secretary is right. We all need to be thinking about how, how can we provide the future energy the world needs and can we do it with less carbon? but it's gonna be a much bigger challenge than simply making political statements. And so when we talk about the companies, uh, when we talk about industry, I think their first reason for being is, how can they continue to provide the world, the energy the world needs? And a lot of that is going to be oil and gas, but they also can't be looking backwards. It can't be about delay and deny anymore. And I think both traditional companies and new companies they're going to have to be part of the solution, and that is figuring out ways to either produce oil and gas in a less carbon-intensive ways, or possibly helping with develop some of the newer technologies, whether it's solar, wind, renewables, batteries, and we can talk more about any of them. And there's no one-size-fits-all. We can't conclude that every company has to become a solar and wind company. 
But I do think all companies are going to have to be part of the solution in both meeting the world's energy needs, but also doing it with less carbon. Why would anyone think that because a corporation has the word energy in its title or in its mission, if its legacy has been oil and gas, fossil fuels, why would we think it would know any more about solar or wind or nuclear or hydrogen than any other number of companies? What's the, what's the comparative advantage for large legacy oil and gas companies to be even involved in non-fossil fuels? I, first of all, completely agree with the premise of your question. That just because you produce oil and gas today or any other form of energy doesn't mean you should be the company producing some different form of energy going forward. And I think we've seen that in numerous different industries, including this one. You have a certain expertise, you have a competitive advantage. Your job is to provide competitive returns to investors. And that could well be in the traditional oil and gas space. Even under the IEA's two degree scenario, there is still, even in that scenario, going to be at least 70 million barrels a day of oil demand in the future. I think it'll actually be higher, but let's just take their scenario of 70 million barrels a day in that 2040, 2050 timeframe versus around 100 million barrels a day. Someone is going to have to produce that. So while there's a lot of pressure from activists and other folks to pressure, especially big oil companies, to transition, do we want the world to simply have the oil produced from state-owned companies, some of whom are dependable, some of whom might be less dependable, some of whom might embrace the need to try and produce less methane and do less carbon-intensive oil extraction, but some who may not. And, and so I think it is incumbent upon big oils or even smaller mid-sized oils to figure out what is their source of competitive advantage. Perhaps it is to be the lowest cost oil producer. With that comes a responsibility as an example to not flare methane. That's an example of how an oil company can produce shale oil and gas while contributing to a less carbon intensive future for that production. But if you're a middle-class person, and especially if you're a, a working or poor person in India, China, Africa, other parts of the developing world, unfortunately, you probably cannot afford a Tesla today. And maybe that'll change going forward. Maybe other companies will actually make electric vehicles as an example that people actually want to drive. So far, only Tesla has really shown that to their credit. We'll see if others can show it. I think others ultimately will be able to. But the idea that you're going to shift 1.2 billion current internal combustion engine cars or light trucks all into EVs in some short time frame is wholly unrealistic. So we know we're going to need a lot of oil and gas for at least the next 20 or 30 years and possibly longer. But there is still an imperative to try and produce it in a less carbon intensive, more environmentally friendly manner. I think that is the responsibility of a large oil company. But I certainly don't think and do not advocate that every oil company needs to figure out how to do solar or wind or hydrogen or any other new technology. Some might be able to. There may be some technologies that are more logical for oil companies. As an example, there's a refining company, Valero Energy, that you might know. And they've got a terrific presentation on their website. I think they call it advancing the future of energy. This is a company that turns crude oil through the refining process into gasoline and diesel. And they're pursuing a number of uh, what are called renewable diesel projects, turning soybean and vegetable oil and other feedstocks like that into diesel. This isn't biodiesel. This is a full replacement for traditional diesel. And in pursuing these projects, Valero is actually going to be able to reduce their net carbon footprint, scope one and scope two emissions, by as much as 70%, 70%, I believe that goal is by 2030. I'd probably have to check the exact date. And they're going to do it with projects that they believe are going to generate very competitive returns for their shareholders. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I think it's an example where through their creativity, through their engineering, through competitive advantages they believe they have, they're going to help meet the world's need for diesel fuel with a product that is ostensibly cleaner than traditional diesel while generating profits for shareholders and at a materially lower emissions rate. And it's just one example that Valero, my guess, I've covered them for a long time, probably should not be in the solar industry. I don't know that for sure, but I'm guessing they shouldn't be. But I do think for them, this low carbon fuel strategy is an interesting one. And there are examples like that 
throughout industry that I think can make sense. But I think to your point, should everyone become an international energy company, as I think the Europeans now call it? I don't think that is the case. Well, it, it's fascinating if you think back through history and the changes in energy that have been, excuse the pun, generated by economic changes and discovery of new resources. You know, back in the 1800s, uh, we were slaughtering whales in order to get oil to run lamps on people's tables. And then John D. Rockefeller discovers oil and we get into oil and gas. You know, my, my grandfather was born in London in 1901. And at that time, there were horses everywhere. Same thing in New York City. And the pollution from manure, the stench of livestock in the streets was unbearable. And the befouling of the Thames River or the Hudson River in New York as a result of that was staggering and frightening. And in that sense, oil and gas turned out to be a vast improvement in terms of environmental friendliness. Now, as we think about these new transitions or transformations, the difference, and I know this sounds like a complicated question lecture, but just give me a moment here. I, I'm asking the audience to indulge me. The movement from whale oil to oil and from horses to automobiles and gasoline and so on, that really was driven by economics. It was not environmental regulation. It was not a concern about climate change and, this, and the like. So here, here's a, a hypothetical question, Arjun. If we thought for a moment, put aside the idea that we need to wean ourselves from petroleum and gas because of climate change, because of carbon emissions. If we were just looking solely at the economics of production and the power that was created by fossil fuels, would we be undertaking this transition that we're talking about today and that these energy companies are talking about? To what extent are we doing this because of concerns, legitimate concerns about environmental issues? And to what extent would we be making some of these transitions anyway, because perhaps the cost of solar panels have plummeted and so on? Todd, it's a great question. And I actually think ExxonMobil, which is the successor to the original Standard Oil, one of the great ironies is they actually saved the whale through the example you cited by switching from whale oil to kerosene back in the 1800s. And it's been really a, a remarkable revolution uh, since then. I think in terms of economics versus climate and regulation and environmental considerations, there's almost no question, I don't think anyone would debate, producing crude oil and natural gas and transitioning them into usable end products is extremely efficient today. It's been one of the challenges in terms of the ability to move on. No one wants to buy gasoline or diesel or any of these things. Certainly no consumer actually buys crude oil as an example, but we do want to drive cars. We do want to go places. We do want to light our homes. Even the shirts we're wearing ultimately have fossil fuels within them. You can't look anywhere or do anything and not be impacted by fossil fuels. It's not a question of do I like or do I dislike fossil fuels? That's It's not a, a question along those lines. It's do I like living a life? Do I like having a middle class or better lifestyle? And if I don't today, how do I get there? And I don't think there's any debate that the world has hugely benefited from the development of fossil fuels for that aid. Now, when we talk about shifting away from that, it therefore becomes a very high hurdle. And we can talk about the challenges of something like fuel economy. Those types of gains have not been met. So there's been an ability to reduce our fuel consumption. We've not done it, but I'm going to save that discussion for a later point. Well, just to interrupt for a moment, I, I've always been fascinated at how efficient, as you say, a gallon of gasoline is. You take this liquid, you put it in your car, and you can travel 30, 40, 50 miles, and it costs you maybe depending, I live in Southern California, an outrageous cost here, maybe $4.50, other parts of the country for just a couple of dollars. Whereas if I buy a gallon of San Pellegrino bubbly water or Perrier, it will cost me much more than that. And if I put it into my car, I won't go anywhere. So I think part of the issue is the bogey, the hurdle rate 
for alternatives has been very high because we have, we, as if I'm a, a motor vehicle engineer, the engineers have so perfected the internal combustion engine that it is remarkably efficient in taking just this gallon of this liquid that costs less than so many of the other liquids we have in our homes. That That's exactly right. So I think in the need, there's still, I want to say 2 billion people around the world who do not have ready access to electricity, running water, these types of basic necessities. And then there's, of course, billions more who aspire to have improving living standards. And fossil fuels, whether people want it or not, whether people like it or not, are going to be a huge part of meeting that need. But would there be change without climate oversight uh, or regulations or any of these things? And I think I'm going to cite Tesla as an example. So I've had the, the luck, the good fortune to have been able to afford to buy a Tesla going back to 2015. I bought it six years ago to see what I like driving this car. I did not buy it for environmental or climate reasons. I really bought it to see what would it be like to own this thing. And I have to say, Todd, I personally will never or very unlikely to ever drive or personally own an ICE vehicle again, simply because the driving experience is far superior. I like driving with regenerative braking, the instant on, instant off. I much prefer charging at home. I live in a state of New Jersey, the only state where someone will still fill the gasoline for you. In every other state, you have to touch the gas pump. That is disgusting. It is much nicer charging at home. The technology that Tesla has, I do think others will catch up on that, be it ICE or other EVs. I also live in New Jersey where we have regular power outages. And so things like distributed solar, I would like to be able to invest in solar and have my lights running when we have our inevitable storms or hurricanes or what have you. So I do think some of these technologies would be happening irrespective of climate. But Todd, no one likes to, to breathe unbreathable air. So I've traveled to New Delhi, I've traveled to Beijing, I've traveled to some of these developing cities, and it, air pollution is quite a challenge. And so even if it's not for climate reasons, I think there's a lot of good reasons to care about figuring out ways to either make the gasoline, diesel, et cetera, cleaner or begin the transition to other things. Then when you layer on the climate necessities and the fact that we are going to have to somehow figure out a way to still provide affordable energy with less carbon, I think you're going to start accelerating the transition to some other things. But by acceleration, I'm talking multiple decades. I do think it's a 2050 type horizon in terms of a possible energy transition. I think those calling for a faster transition, perhaps we can hope they're right. I don't know. But I think it's going to be very, very tough to make big changes in the near term. Do you think, just sticking with the auto companies for a moment, and I agree with you about Tesla. The first time I test drove a Tesla, I thought, what in the world have BMW and Mercedes been doing for the last 10 years, but sitting on their fake leather chairs? Obviously, Elon Musk led a revolution and not simply in the energy and the batteries for that car, but many other aspects of that vehicle. Do you think that the automobile companies are too aggressive in their public announcements of how few gasoline-powered vehicles they think they'll be selling in 2030 and 2040? So I, I think, and I'd say it this way, I'm probably one of the few people who is both bullish EVs in terms of their outlook and bullish oil demand. And what I mean by that is I think we are ultimately going to have meaningful market share taken from ICE vehicles towards EVs, but that that probably plays out over a 20 to 30 year time frame. I, my, I would suspect that the near term targets are too aggressive. So there's been steady improvements in lithium ion batteries, as we all know. Uh, but even Tesla acknowledges that they're going to have to figure out next generation battery technology. They had a battery day last year where they laid out a number of different plans. That takes time and there's an uncertainty. There's solid state battery technology. Again, a lot of these things remind me of when I covered some of the uh, alternative energy names from 20 years ago, where there were technologies that might work in the laboratory, but still have yet to scale up. Fuel cells has been five years away for my entire 30-year career. Same with cellulosic ethanol. It seems to really make EVs affordable for the masses. We're going to have to get to next-generation battery technology. I think that will happen. There's a complete capital markets boom around this space. And even if there 
bubble aspects to that. I think real money is being invested and will get invested even in some future cycle. I think these problems will be solved. But the idea that we're going to eliminate ICE engines by, say, 2030 or 2035, that strikes me as too early by probably 15 to, to 20 years at least. And at some point, consumers around the world, citizens around the world are going to say, you can't take my car away from me. I, I want to be able to drive. And maybe as someone uh, who's had, been lucky to have had a good career at Goldman Sachs and elsewhere, I had the choice to buy a Tesla. Not true for much of the world. And again, unless you're going to give the whole world a Tesla, I think we're going to be having ICE vehicles for quite some time. What do you think of the energy companies and filling station companies getting into the e-charging business? How fruitful a business do you think that is? I was listening to the BP earnings call the other day, and they boasted about their thousands of charge points in the UK and Germany and, and China it, that they're doing in joint ventures. It's a little bit different. When you go to the gasoline station, even in New Jersey, you might expect to be there, oh, I don't know the average time. It's not a pit stop at NASCAR, but maybe it's five minutes, six minutes to fill up the car and, and perhaps wipe your hands with some Purell. Uh, charging station, you're there longer. The idea that you stop at the charging station and you're going to be there for 10 or 20 minutes it's not a whole lot to do. I don't think people really want to loiter the aisles of the little mini convenience store. So what do you think of that business proposition, the idea of energy companies getting into the e-charging business? I think people are using the gas station model and the gas station experience incorrectly as it replies to EVs. So there's two instances that are relevant to stop at a gas station. One is you're driving locally and you go to work and you come home. And then every week or so, depending on how much you drive, you're going to have to go fill up. And then there's long distance travel. For everything but long distance travel, you don't need the local gas stations for the most part. Now, that does presuppose that you live in a home or an apartment building that has charging access. So for those that do not live in those circumstances, there might need to be different solutions. But for the bulk of Americans that live in a house, I charge at home. It is much nicer to charge at home. When I have to go fill up my wife's car at a gas station, it is an unpleasant experience. Why would we want to replicate that with EV? So I think that part of the business model I would question. I think you're going to see destination charging as being one of the solutions at both places people work and at hotels and other places people stay. And then on the interstate highways, I suspect the rest areas should have charging stations. But the idea that we need some major EV charging infrastructure program or boom, it's not the nature of how you charge your car. Now, to your point on these long-distance trips, again, I think it's going to vary by people. By and large, I think a lot of people fly if they're going an especially long distance. And I think this is especially true for people that live on the coast. I think the idea that you're going to otherwise suffer from a 20-minute charging time on a regular basis, that could be a hurdle. Uh, especially for people who live in the middle of the country, as an example. I think these are all amongst the reasons for why the idea that you could go 100% EV is certainly premature until we get faster charging times. But as far as the business model goes, it's not clear to me what the business model is to be a charging company. Because again, the, the best way to charge is really at home, possibly at a hotel or your place of business. Are there homes, utilities, countries where the electricity in the home is not sufficient and therefore people would not be able to do what you can do so easily? I think that's right. So again, when we talk about the build out of electric vehicles or the replacement of ICE vehicles, especially in the developing world, if these countries already have challenged infrastructure grids, and again, I live in New Jersey, we have a challenged infrastructure grid here. So what is it like in other parts of the world? it's probably not conducive to everyone switching from their ICE vehicle to an electric vehicle, no matter how much more pleasurable uh, the EV experience is. You know, China, the company NIO has a battery swapping technology. It's very interesting. Whether that is a viable solution at a large scale is not clear yet. And so perhaps in some of these places, there may be different models that can make sense. But if you're going to not be able to charge at home, and you are going to rely on, let's just say, some equivalent of an old-scale 
gasoline marketing infrastructure, the charging times are going to have to drop dramatically. And whether a lithium-ion battery can be regularly recharged quickly and repeatedly, I don't think we're there yet on the technology today. We might be in the future. Whether solid-state or other batteries can deliver on the promise of much faster recharge times, I think that's still to be proven. Again, we might get there. But in terms of the timescales, how is it going to be possible to replace all our ICE vehicles in the next 5, 10, or 15 years? I, I don't think it will be. People are going to want to be able to drive cars. So let's just scroll ahead a little bit, 10 years, 20 years, and we've substantially moved into EV. Where will the utilities be getting the fuel in order to power so many vehicles that heretofore would have been taking petroleum? So there's two big needs with the utilities. And I'll I'll start with the U.S. focus, though this will extend to the rest of the world, which is the need to invest in whether it's high-speed transition lines, remaking our electric grid, strengthening it, providing more resiliency. Their outage is not just New Jersey. Obviously, Texas is recent and high profile where you live in California. There is clearly a need to invest in our electric grid. And that is going to be true whether we move to electric vehicles or don't move in that direction. This, of course, is even more true in other parts of the world. In terms of the fuel to power that electricity, which is a great question, unlike transportation fuels, where essentially your overwhelming best use has been crude oil turned into gasoline, diesel, jet, or shipping fuels. That is the overwhelming majority of how you drive or fly anything. In the case of power generation, you've always had choice. You could do coal, you could do residual fuel oil, you could do nuclear, you could do natural gas, you could do solar, wind, a bunch of other stuff. We've always had choice. After the 1970s, the world essentially came to the conclusion Maybe we don't want to rely on crude oil as a power generation fuel. We started relying on coal, which is inexpensive, especially in China and India. Nuclear, carbon-free solution, did come into vogue in the 70s, but due to well-known concerns, has kind of tapered off. And it's a big question going forward. So there's always been choice. I think for people who are concerned about trying to address climate change, The good news is that a lot of progress has been made on solar and especially offshore wind and potentially in some places onshore wind. So there is a hope of betterment. But of course, we know it's an intermittent resource. So not dissimilar from progress that's needed with electric vehicles, we're going to need improvements in battery storage. That clearly is going to need to be one of the complementary technologies for solar and wind if, if we are going to rely on it going forward. But again, not dissimilar from the EV, people want to be able to turn on the lights and have the power come on. Reliability is absolutely critical, first and foremost. Affordability is the number two question. And then number three will turn to, hopefully we can do it in as clean a manner as possible. Let's talk now about the viability of large energy companies from the investment point of view. Now, we could have spoken, oh, back in the early 1990s, and I could have told you that Americans are going to be smoking cigarettes far less than they do today, and that the cigarette makers would be looking like villains and avoided by investors, many investors. I could have somehow predicted that Elon Musk would come to America and build the Tesla and that EV would take over the internal combustion engine. And I could have, in early 1990s, concluded, therefore, run away from Philip Morris, run away from Exxon. There's no future for those companies. They'll never be able to pay dividends or maintain their share prices and so on. And boy, I would have been wrong because I would have missed out on, I don't know, a thousand percent return on each of them, something like that, plus a whole lot of dividends. So the fact that there may be this enormous transition away from fossil fuels, what does this imply from an investor point of view when we look at big energy companies? It's a great question, and I like the tobacco comparison because why were they good stocks? Ultimately, they generated the type of profitability, free cash flow, and dividends back to shareholders that the market liked and rewarded. And energy companies 
have a history of doing that. They just don't have a recent history of doing that. So if you actually go back to the period 1990 to 2000, this was a pretty lackluster period for oil prices, 15 to $20 a barrel in nominal terms. The leading companies generated 12 to 15% returns on capital. Anything in double digits or mid-teens is a good number. They had growing dividends. They were generally good stock market stocks. They were a meaningful portion of the S&P 500. We then had a super cycle. And what's interesting is in the first half of the super cycle period, returns on capital improved. And then what happened? They started over-investing and they started investing in higher cost, less robust projects. And returns actually peaked, returns on capital peaked in 2006 when oil was 70 and actually fell slightly into the ultimate peak of $147 a barrel in 2008. And they've been falling ever since. 2020, essentially every company except for I think one lost money in the traditional oil and gas business. And it marked the end of, I think, of a 15 year, 15 year erosion in returns on capital. Now looking forward, I think the most important driver for traditional oil and gas equities is, is there a case to be made for improving profitability? My preferred metric is return on capital employed. You can use different metrics. With that would come some element of free cash flow, some element of dividends and stock buybacks. I believe that in a, let's just call it 50 to $60 type oil price environment, the leading energy companies can and will get back to generating double digit returns on capital. Some are already showing signs of being well on track to do that. I think we're gonna get a commitment from the better companies to more dividends, more stock buyback. You can see that in some of the promises. And I think somewhat analogous to your tobacco example, that is the investment case for especially some of the leading independent producers and major oils. We'll see if they can deliver, but they certainly showed in the 1990s, it is possible to deliver even if you do not have a super cycle type environment. And in fact, that super cycle ended up being more negative than it was positive for traditional energy. Do you think there's going to be less or more competition in the energy exploration field? It seems as if big oil and gas are pulling back and leaving it more to the independents. Does that mean that we're likely to see better returns on investment from those independents? It's an interesting question. I think, Todd, if I answered it literally, there actually isn't an exploration business today that anyone is pursuing. It, it is one of the things that people will cite that ultimately perhaps another super cycle can happen. So then what, what are Schlumberger and Halliburton both, both announced decent earnings very recently. So where are they making the money? So shale, where I would say the resource is essentially known at this point in time, the good and bad areas are largely delineated, still holds a lot of promise in terms of helping meet what I think will be growing oil demand, at least over the next decade and possibly for a couple of decades to come. The combination of shale and the combination of some of the spare capacity that currently exists in OPEC as well as plans that some of the OPEC countries have to grow their supply in the future, we can debate how quickly and how sustainably these countries and companies can grow their supply. But at least for a period of time, let's just call it the next several years, I think they're going to be able to. That is the source of the traditional oil business. There is a lot of pressure on these companies. A lot of it deserved for the poor profitability that was delivered over the last 10 years to not invest. Shareholders are avoiding these companies. At the same time, there is this uncertainty about energy transition. Now, Todd, I might have a view that people are too optimistic on the timing of oil demand having peaked and that I think it's not going to be for 20 years. Someone else may say, what do you know? Maybe it already happened. Maybe it's going to happen in five years. And these are reasonable debates to have. They wouldn't have been historically. They are reasonable debates to have today. I think, though, that debate is raising the cost of capital, if you will, on supply. It's keeping investors from supporting new developments. They're saying, why bother? If your profitability stinks and I don't know when energy transition is going to happen, I don't need to bother investing. And that is going to keep markets, I think, tighter for longer than perhaps people currently realize. Unlike other businesses, you mentioned tobacco. This would be true of copper. Uh, this would be true of um, the toilet paper business. Once you build a plant, it lasts for a long time. In the oil business, if you do not invest, 
supply declines naturally, but anywhere from five to 30%, depending on the field, every year, right? And so even if you're concerned about demand, even if you think it might peak at some point in time, I would put forward, it is far more likely that supply will fall before demand falls. That creates the price cycle. Now, that's not my call for the current couple of years. Again, I think there's OPEC spare capacity and shale production still to go, but that ultimately will be a source of perhaps better profits for this industry going forward, that higher cost of capital that is coming as a result of concern over energy transition, while also people being disappointed with the recent history of bad profitability. Let's reveal your view of where energy prices are headed in the next couple of months and then the next couple of years. So the big problem over the last five Now, by the way, Arjun, I noticed in my prior questions, you always began your answer by saying, that's a great question, Todd. This time, when I put you on the spot asking for a price point, I didn't get that compliment, did I? You know, Todd, I'm no longer at Goldman Sachs, so I kind of shudder. At, I've been relieved to not be in the public price prognostication business. Uh, so perhaps I was just shuddering at the question a little bit. So we know over the last five years, shale producers said they would generate a good return and be able to grow production at $50 oil. We actually had more than $50 oil on average over the last five years. And while they promised 20, 30, 40, 50% IRRs on their wells, you know what they actually delivered? 0% returns on capital at the corporate level. They completely and entirely missed their profit forecast, which says either the wells weren't as good as expected, there was other spending that was not accounted for, or that wasn't actually a high enough price to cover the totality of your capex and costs. And it's actually a mixture of all three. I think investors and managements, to some degree, not entirely, but to some degree, have wised up to this. All of that starts supporting a price environment closer to 60 than, say, 40 for picking numbers. At the end of the day, though, and I mentioned this in my previous answer, especially for equity investors, it is not about trying to guess prices. It is about a framework for improving profitability. And in the same way, returns on capital were higher in the $15 to $20 nominal oil environment of 1991 to 2000 than they were in the $60 plus or minus environment since 2014. That's really the key. Where is their competitive advantage? Where can you invest in a field where you can bring down costs or the costs are lower than your competitors? Or someone who spent a dollar developing an asset, I can now buy that for 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. These are all examples of how you can earn a differential return. And that is ultimately far more important than actually anyone, including me, trying to guess where prices are going to go. Well, Arjun, in your work at, at Goldman and, and elsewhere, you need to be an economist. You need to be a bit of a geologist. You also need to be a kind of sociologist or anthropologist. So I'd like you to, based on your experience, take us into two different places and give us your sort of read of how people are thinking. First, I, I'd like you to take us into the boardroom of big energy companies as they confront this transition and tell us about the role of corporate culture and how that impacts their ability to make this transition. And secondly, perhaps you've uh, not been at the decision table at an OPEC meeting, but what do you think is going on within OPEC with Saudi's decisions to hold back production and Russia playing a role in that and so on? My old mentor and partner, Julian Robertson, used to say that Saudi Arabia, all you had to do is stick a straw in the ground and oil would bubble up. It was so cheap. So if you could give us your sense of how to read those two institutions, the boardroom of, of big oil and gas and the boardroom of OPEC as each tries to make what could be momentous decisions for their futures. Well, let me start with big oil, which was your first specific question. And I'm going to speak generically. I'm not speaking about any individual company here. But I, I have to say that I've been pleasantly surprised in looking at the totality of the space that they're trying to figure out a couple things. What are my sources of competitive advantage? Where is my disadvantage? What do I not do well? How do I improve core profitability? And what is the best way that I can engage proactively 
on a host of societal questions that I think are going to need to be addressed. And so there's the ESG topic, which I would say is sort of everything but climate. So gender diversity, makeup of your senior management team or board members in terms of a variety of different backgrounds and skill sets, it's health, safety, environment, and these kind of things. I think on those metrics, actually, they don't often get credit, but I would say big oil actually compares very favorably. I suspect, Todd, you would rather your children work in the Permian Basin for any of the big oils than you would want them to work at an Amazon warehouse. Now, I've never worked in an Amazon warehouse, but I would suspect that it's probably not even a close call, actually, in terms of commitment to safety, health, environment, benefits, healthcare, other types of things that you would get. And I think there's a lot of good story to be told on big oil collectively on a lot of those metrics. I think as far as energy transition goes, I think this is kind of the biggest area of uncertainty. So if you go back to my 1990s example, big oil companies are really good at restructuring their legacy operations. So whether it's selling a refinery here, divesting some old oil field that is not a part of your mission going forward, figuring out new areas where you might be able to add a competitive advantage to a project or a portfolio, and I'm talking about traditional oil and gas, they actually do that well. They're really good at restructuring and improving returns on capital in that type of framework. And I think that's where I have a lot of optimism that these very poor returns on capital they delivered over the last 10 years is now backwards looking, and we need to look forward with making investments. I think what has never been the case historically has been, is there a need to figure out different technologies or new areas to invest? And we touched upon this a little bit earlier in the interview. There is no one right answer for what any company could do. So if you look at the European supermajors, take an example, BP or Shell, they talk a lot about becoming consumer-facing companies, BP especially, but also Shell, if you go through their analyst materials or climate sustainability reports. And it certainly isn't their legacy. They're, they're not, I mean, they have gas stations. Oftentimes, as I think you know, Todd, oil companies don't actually own the gas stations in their name, uh, maybe a little bit more so of the Europeans. But the idea that they're going to transition to consumer-facing businesses, I think we can say maybe that has yet to be proven if we we're going to be kind here. You look at different companies like Pioneer Natural Resources, a shale producer in the Permian Basin. They talk more uh, narrowly about improving and reducing methane. And so I think, how do you contribute going forward? There are different answers for different companies. I think Exxon's trying to figure it out. They do have a legacy, Exxon, of carbon capture. They did it for efficiency purposes. I think they now need to figure out how to do it for climate change purposes. Occidental Petroleum talks a lot about carbon capture and storage in these types of assets, which is certainly consistent with what they've been good at historically. And so I think it's one of the more interesting times to, I think, be in a, in a large company boardroom or an observer of the industry. They actually have a lot of good ideas. We don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. It's going to take the next decade, would be my guess, to kind of figure it out. I actually think that's broadly consistent with what society's doing. If you look at the country of China, the largest emitter in the world today, they talk about over the next 10 years, we hope our emissions will sort of plateau, we'll make more meaningful reductions in the decades beyond. I suspect corporate America, including the big oils, will be broadly consistent with that type of time frame. But there are actually a lot of good ideas in these companies. It's unfortunate that the political rhetoric is so divisive, especially in this country. It's not needed. It's unhelpful. Now, some of it is the blame of big oil. I think you can critique them historically. Some were more in that delay and deny type of bucket, but that's not the case today. I think they're embracing the need to change. They're embracing the need to first and foremost improve profitability and restructure, and then be part of the solution to delivering, improving living standards for the middle class, but doing it hopefully in a less carbon intensive way than they have historically. And as we turn to OPEC and whether you place them at their round table in Vienna or where they really live in the Arabian Peninsula, how are you looking at uh, their ability to influence, if not control, energy prices at this time? Todd, I actually think people would be surprised at how much proactive and positive change is going on within especially some of the most important OPEC countries. And I might include in this bucket countries like Saudi Arabia and via Saudi Aramco, 
Qatar on the LNG side, and I suspect United Arab Emirates and Kuwait would fit this bill as well. I am probably leaving out some folks, but let's just talk about those four countries. Uh, Saudi Aramco actually has amongst the lowest carbon intensity in terms of oil production today. It's a metric they're aware of. It's a metric they calculate. And you can go and meet with their management team. And I think you'd be surprised at the degree to which they're trying to figure out how do they continue to survive and thrive in a world going forward. They have a huge responsibility to clearly provide a standard of living for their own citizens. But frankly, they've been there for the world certainly since the 1940s. We're pushing 70 plus years where despite volatility in the region and in some of these countries, they've helped improve the world's living standards and they care about doing this going forward. And Todd, in a surprisingly lower carbon kind of way, Qatar is one of the first to at least claim to sell a carbon-free cargo of LNG. Now, I've not seen, so others may have the full accounting of that and there's lots of questions we can ask. We can ask how scalable that is today but they care about these things. You know, I was just going to ask you to define what they mean by that, by sort of a carbon neutral barrel and so on, or whether it's LNG. What does that mean? So I've, I have two predictions I'd be willing to make here today, even though I kind of shied away from your price question a little bit, admittedly. The first is that we're going to continue to use a lot of oil and gas going forward. It's not clear to me when you're really going to have declines from this 100 million barrel day level. It's sometime, I think, decades into the future. But I do think if you're going to sell oil and gas, it's ultimately going to have to be fully offset from a carbon standpoint. Now, that's going to take some time to get to. It will be carbon capture in particular. It'll be direct air capture. It could be hydrogen-oriented solutions, which that's a little bit of a science project that will take some time. I think ultimately the world will demand that if you're going to sell oil and gas, and especially if you're gonna buy it, I mean, it's people around the world that drive cars. It's not, for the most part, in any substantial way, the leaders of any of these companies or countries, it's regular people. But I think that that barrel is gonna to have to be net carbon neutral. Now that could mean that you're investing in other areas of decarbonization. And I think the accounting of this today, we don't have the answer to that. But on this podcast, your colleague, Eric Townsend, and on his Macro Voices podcast, as well as other shows I've listened to, I think this is one of the things we're going to have to work through. I think these are technologies that others know a lot more about, whether it's blockchain and other distributed ledger technologies, but ensuring that the accounting of that carbon offset is both real and sustainable and can be accounted for, I think you're going to have to ultimately sell oil and gas carbon neutral. I don't know what that date is. It's almost certainly beyond 2030, but I think that's where we're headed towards. How can investors discern who's serious and who's not when they're talking about these sort of transitions and net zero targets? It's a challenge. So you mentioned the Beyond Petroleum example from earlier in my career back in, I want to say it was uh, the early 2000s post-BP's Amico and Arco mergers. And I think at the time when they came out with Beyond Petroleum, a lot of us were very skeptical that it was possible that it could be done at any time with time frame, and what it actually meant. I think with hindsight, we were probably right to have been skeptical. I think even BP would say that slogan, I think Lord Brown would say that slogan was before its time. I think when you look today, the first question is, who is serious about restructuring their portfolios to improve profitability? What actions are they taking? Are they still promising growth? Or are they talking X growth and here are some combination of asset sales, other cost cuts that can help improve profitability. I think when it comes to energy transition and climate, you just read the reports. Which of these companies is talking about stuff that does not historically match up with them versus who are coming up with concrete examples of what they're going to do? Again, I would cite two U.S. companies, Valero Energy and Pioneer Natural Resources, which have very interesting detail plans of what they're going to do. They, they may not succeed, well, we'll have to see, but there's a credibility to what they're articulating. And I think that'll be true of some of the other US large companies. I think as far as the Europeans go, they clearly face more pressure politically and from people in Europe about needing to show a particularly energy transitioned face. And when I read their plans, it's less clear to me, and I'm an outsider, 
whether their visions are going to be achieved or not. We we will see. But I again, oil companies aren't historically consumer-facing companies. That's a really big cultural change. So are companies doing things consistent with who they are? And if they're not, have they brought in new people? How can it be that someone who ran Angola E&P or a refining business is now doing consumer-facing electric vehicles? And maybe that exact person is not doing it. But have you brought in new people who knew, know something about these new technologies? You know, in the private equity world, you partner with leading management teams in all these different areas. It's a very interesting business model. At a big corporation, you tend to have a certain number of people. And this idea that you bring in people from the outside to run new businesses, it's not done anywhere near as it's done in the business you and I are in, Todd, the investment world. And I think that's going to be the one of the big challenges. Who will embrace cultural change? I didn't say cultural revolution. I said cultural change. Who will bring in new people from the outside? Who is willing to listen to a variety of voices? In this example, things like gender diversity does matter. Does your board have a variety of different perspectives? No one would want a board, I promise you, that comprised entirely of sell-side analysts. I, I would not wish that on anyone. Nor would you want a board of entirely former CEOs, as an example. You need a mixture of all these. You need people with a technology background. You need people with a climate background. You do need people with real investment expertise who care about the stock price. You need all these different perspectives. And that is certainly one of the indicators, I think, from the outside. You can look at which CEO wants to hear dissenting or different viewpoints. It's critical to improving uh, your outlook as, your co as a company. Well, Arjun, I, I've let you escape the price point forecast, but I do want to bring you back to my question of the politics of OPEC and the politics of restraint on drilling and production. Let me put it this way. If the price of oil moves up from WTI today might be $63, $64 a barrel, if it moves up to $75 a barrel, what do you see changing in terms of output and will the sort of cartel apparatus hold? So give me a moment about Saudi Arabia and give me a moment about Russia and how secure or how dependable their participation is in output restraint. So right now, today, we have drawn down a lot of the above ground inventories that had built up during the worst of the COVID period, but we still have a lot of OPEC spare capacity. So in very round numbers, demand was 100 million barrels a day pre-COVID. It fell to 80. It's now back to 93 or 94 million barrels a day. And that remaining delta between 100 and the current 93 is essentially the OPEC spare capacity you have. So as and if the vaccines take hold, and I know it's currently a challenging situation in India. I certainly wish and hope that that country will be able to get through this period. But as vaccines take hold and we get back to 100 million barrels a day, that should roughly match with the elimination of any remaining OPEC spare capacity, which gets you back to an environment where you're going to be dependent on a combination of future growth from some of the OPEC countries, from growth from Russia, as well as growth from shale. Right now, no investor wants to underwrite shale growth. I do think, though, Todd, to use the number you just quoted, 70 or $75 a barrel, if we have that for a period of time, I don't know if it's six months or 12 months or 18 months, you're certainly going to see shale activity resume. Now, one of the calls we got credit for at Goldman Sachs was calling the last super cycle. And one of the things we noticed then is demand surprise to the upside. I'm talking the 2003-2004 period and supply disappointed. In terms of demand surprise to the upside, with so many people forecasting a peak of demand, I wonder if just normal demand growth of a million barrels a day as we've had for so long, perhaps that constitutes a positive demand surprise. Todd, though, we're still not seeing the supply disappointments like we saw in that previous super cycle period. While shale is down from its highs, it's down about in line with expectations and consistent with the rate count. So what I'd be looking forward to, I'd just say, have a more optimistic outlook that a super cycle is upon us, probably most meaningfully would be supply starts disappointing again. I think in the case of OPEC, we have to remember they're not just oil companies, they are countries as well. And they have social spending and a whole bunch of needs that sometimes limits their ability to grow supply even if they otherwise could do it based on simply geology. So the more dependent you are on 
a country growing its supply, I think the greater the probabilities are that you have a price and higher price environment. The biggest thing I would like to see is for those who are more bearish on the outlook for shale. Some people think the best locations have already been drilled. I think we need to see more evidence that shale supply is disappointing beyond simply the pluses and minuses of the rig count. If you want me to put a time frame on it, I think a super cycle is less likely in the next two to three years. I think it's going to be a normal up cycle. There's obviously a lot of volatility in the broader macro that's beyond the scope of this conversation. But typically, these things are sort of 15 years in duration. So 1970 to 1985, we had a bull market period. 85 to 2000, bear market. 2000 to 2015, bull market. That gets you sometime in sort of the middle of this decade, uh, maybe where you could have a stronger upcycle. But there's you know, there's a lot of water to cross before we get to that point. I'd like to ask you for a moment on, on the macro front about inflationary forces. There does seem to be some emerging inflation in the economy. Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve Board is cheering for more inflation, perhaps recklessly so. We've seen commodities, copper, lumber, wheat exploding off the charts. Oil has not done that. Oil has gone up some, but not anywhere near some of these other commodities. If we were to have a substantial move up in inflation, instead of 2% to 35 or 4%, does that matter for the price of oil? If you simply knew that inflation a year from now was 4% instead of 1.8%, would that change your forecast for the price of oil? Todd, I actually think it's more important for the price of oil equities. So I think they have historically proven to have been an excellent inflation hedge. Oil, after all, is a real asset. So you're certainly going to have other guests. I know Eric Townsend. I know the great Endgame podcast by Grant Williams has a number of terrific guests who can speak far more intelligently about the outlook for inflation versus deflation than I can. What I would say, though, is that outlook for inflation, if we do start to see it, I think is a material driver of the investment case for oil equity. So we've obviously been in an environment where GDP growth has generally been lackluster, interest rates have been near zero, and there's been a huge premium paid, appropriately so, for leading growth companies. Some of them are fantastic companies, the well-known Apples and Googles of the world that generate awesome, awesome returns on capital and volume growth and these kind of things. But there are also companies that have benefited who... I would defy you to even find positive EBITDA for. So this sort of sort of unanimous, overwhelming preference for growth talks, the inflation question gets to the heart of it. I personally believe we have seen the trough in growth versus value. And I think oil equities are part of that equation. I think a higher market cost of capital is probably going to do more damage to growth equities than a value sector. But again, for oil companies, they're not the only value sector out there. So they're still going to have to show that they can generate better returns on capital. If we start getting a little bit of inflation, not just a short-term period of 2 or 3%, but really higher prices, I think it's going to be a place to turn to. The final area would just simply be this question of fiat currency debasement. And again, there are other guests who are more intelligent on this. But I do wonder if as a store of value, oil places oil companies might be one of the places to look. People are looking elsewhere right now. But if you get back to an environment where the profitability has improved, some of these companies are credibly explaining how they're going to be lower carbon going forward. Maybe you get a little bit of inflation. I think there's a pretty strong investment case to be made for especially some of the large and mid-sized companies in the traditional oil and gas space. But I, I guess where I'm not quite following is unless we see that the price of oil for instance, goes up appreciably because of that inflation, I don't see why the assets are worth more. Why, why are the companies worth more unless their biggest asset goes up in value? So again, for an oil company, it is not just about the oil price. And so there's this constant interaction between capital, capital costs, uh, the cost to produce the oil, and then the price they receive. And even within that, within the oil business, the supply cost curve can be reasonably steep. Uh, so there are areas where you can generate very high returns on capital, even at, let's just call it a moderate price. And you're constantly striving to get to that future low end of the cost curve opportunity. There's also opportunities to buy assets that someone else spent the dollar on, 
that you might only be able to get for 10 or 15% on the dollar. So the, the challenge is always, how do you improve your profitability? Not how do you sit around and wait for a higher price environment? I really have to dissuade everyone of this notion that price and returns correlate over the long run. In any 12-month period, clearly if oil goes up or down, you're going to see it immediately in the earnings. But if you can just look even three years or five years into the future, and, and maybe that's too much to ask, but if you do that, you will find that the underlying cycle of profitability, actually about a 15-year cycle, we're just coming off the end of a 15-year downturn, I think we're actually going to have a 15-year upturn. So if you then get what you asked about, which is some bit of inflation, if you start perhaps having treasury rates rise, again, I'm not a treasury macro forecaster, but let's say they do rise. Again, if you start taking the stocks do not trade in a vacuum, what happens to growth stocks does impact what happens to oil stocks. So that value versus growth trade is important. The outlook for broader inflation is important. Does it make the inherent asset more valuable? With public equity markets, that relative consideration is an important consideration. But I actually think on an absolute basis, they've been suffering from actually higher cost of capital over the last five years at a time where everyone else's cost of capital has come down. If they simply get back to the cost of capital they've historically enjoyed, that would be a step in the right direction, let alone if they start to benefit from a lower cost of capital, which I'm not even calling for. But again, might go to the specific question you asked. Excellent. In our remaining moments, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question about LNG. It had come up earlier in the conversation. Is LNG an environmental winner? Is it a also ran? I mean, President Obama was very excited about LNG exports and Energy Secretary Rick Perry on, under uh President Trump called it a freedom gas at one point, and obviously it's been a very successful export. But then there are those who are concerned about capping methane emissions, and if it's not done properly, maybe LNG is not the winner that prior presidents had lauded it as. What's your take on that? Your question gets to the heart of the issue. Well, first of all, nothing is as black and white as a political debate makes it want to be. It is not a question that LNG is the salvation for the world or, you know, Darth Vader either. Uh, it is It is actually depends. So if you are selling LNG to China and India and displacing coal production, it is unquestionably a winner, even if you haven't fully accounted for the methane today. Now, there's no excuse anymore to not deal with methane. It's actually one of the black eyes that the oil and gas industry deservedly faces. The technologies here today with drones and other things to monitor methane, which historically wasn't the case, it's very hard to understand what the excuse would be to continue routine flaring. If there is a good excuse, I have not heard it yet. And of course, most companies are committed to signing up for the World Bank initiative to reduce flaring. But in China and India, one of the biggest climate challenges is they got a whole bunch of coal and a whole bunch of people employed in that coal industry, and coal domestically is far cheaper then importing LNG, which tends to sell at oil equivalent prices much higher than a domestic coal price. So the question is always, how do you encourage China and India in particular to generate future power generation growth from LNG? And then it's going to be coming upon the gas industry. And I think Qatar takes this very seriously. And I think the shale producers have been late to the game, but they're quickly catching up. It is absolutely imperative that industry get back on its front foot as it regards to gas being an appropriate transition fuel. If you're not going to account for your methane, you cannot claim it's a transition fuel, even though I still think it's better than coal. I do think these changes are happening. And I think even if companies, even if companies don't do their part, you now have outside observers, not just activists and crazy people, but actual technology companies, including oil investors who are monitoring this stuff, reputable, non-political research firms doing work, identifying how much methane is produced. And I think, I think industry will clean this up. Whether they do it through regulation or do it their, their own, that's probably a whole nother podcast to debate that. But I think it's one of the critical questions. But gas absolutely is going to be one of the solutions to replacing coal in especially China and India. Arjun, thank you so much. It really has been enlightening and a pleasure to be with you. 
Thank you, Todd. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Next week, I will be back on the airwaves with none other than Josh Crum, serial entrepreneur and creator of ABEX Technologies, ABEX Exchange, and Smarter Markets. Josh is on a mission to redesign our global market systems so we are better able to achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2029. It will be the first time Josh has been interviewed on the podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to sitting down with him. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. Your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABEX Technologies, I'm Todd Buchholz. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. 